Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. Oh, and say, I'd like to tell you about something myself. I'd like to tell you about the wine that more Americans prefer than any other wine. That wine is port. And if you want to know why port is such a favorite, just pour yourself a glass of wonderful Petri California port. Look at that Petri port. Look at its glowing, deep red color. And sample that aroma. It'll remind you of of a walk through a dew-covered vineyard. And now taste that Petri port. Boy, you've got something. Petri port is one of the most delicious wines ever poured from a bottle. Right then and there, Petri port will become your favorite wine. I'm confident of that. And I'm sure you'll want to serve Petri port to your friends, too. After dinner or any time they drop in for a visit. And remember, you can serve Petri port proudly. Because those letters, P-E-T-R-I, spell the proudest name in the history of American wines. Petri. Petri wine. And now I'm sure our good friend Dr. Watson's ready for us. Let's go in and join him. Come in, come in, come in. Ah, there you are, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, uh, Oh, Excuse me, Dr. Watson. I, I didn't know that you had company. Shut the door, my boy, and come in and join us. Let me introduce you, Mr. Bartell. This is my friend, Mrs. Campbell. How do you do, Mrs. Campbell? How do you do, Mr. Bartell? Mrs. Campbell is a very old friend of mine from England, and when she called on me today, I persuaded her to stay and have dinner and then join us in this little session of, of storytelling. You see, Mr. Bartell, she you might call the star of the Sherlock Holmes adventure that I'm going to tell you tonight. Oh, come now, Dr. Watson. I actually played a very small part in the story. In any case, I was much too young at the time to know what was really going on. Say, this is a great idea, Doctor. One of the characters out of your fabulous past here in California in 1946 and helps tell her own story. Oh, no, Mr. Bartell. I'm no storyteller. That's the doctor's department. I'll just listen. No, 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 my dear. I'll set the scene, but you must uh, ring up the curtain, as it were. In any case, my memory isn't too clear on some of the early points in connection with the case. You will have to help me out. Oh, but you're talking to millions of listeners on the radio. I'd be terrified to speak over the air. We're on the air now, Mrs. Campbell. Oh, oh, we're not, are we? Oh, oh, dear. (laughs) No, no, no. Don't worry, Cynthia. If they're kind enough to listen to me week after week, I'm sure they'll be delighted to hear you. And now to get on with the story. The title, The Adventure of the Living Doll. The setting, the Sussex Downs near the bee farm to which Sherlock Holmes retired. The period, 1910. And now, Cynthia, my dear, the curtain's going up, and the first scene belongs to you. Supposing you set it for us. Well, I'll try. We were living on the Sussex Downs also, Mr. Bartell, at that time. My name was then Cynthia Browning. My father, Arthur Browning, had been dead for some years, but my mother kept up the estate with a manager, a Matthew Tanner. I was away at school most of the year, of course, but the happiest times of my childhood were spent during those long summer months in Sussex. 
I lived in a small world, knowing only a few people and loving all of them, or almost all. First of all, there was Mother herself. She was the most beautiful woman in the world and the sweetest. I remember she gave me a puppy on my 12th birthday. His name was Dusty, and he was so sweet. I talked to Mother about him one day. I, I must have sounded terribly young. Mommy, darling, I do love Dusty very, very much. He's a lovely puppy, and you gave him to me. You love him, Cynthia. I know that. But I've been feeding him. That's your job, darling. It's good for grown-up people to have responsibility. Oh, Mommy, I'll feed him. Of course I will. I'll feed him so full. He'll hurt. Then there was the estate manager, Hugh Tanner. Such a pleasant man, and so willing to tell a 12-year-old all the things that a 12-year-old has to know or die. But, Mr. Tanner, why did you have to shoot the horse? He'd only broken his leg. Cynthia, horses aren't like human beings. Their legs won't mend. Now think of a horse that couldn't brisk and run and, and gallop across the downs. We're actually being kind to him. Honest we are, Cynthia. And then there was Frank King, the painter who lived on the downs. He taught me to open my eyes and really see things. No, 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 Cynthia. That sunset isn't red. It's gold and rust. And the water, child, look at it. It's almost rose in this light. Rose flecked with cobwebs. Of eggshell blue. Cynthia, darling, a sunset's never just one colour. Do try and remember that, won't you? And then there was Mr. Pound from the city. I gathered that he was terribly rich and he wanted to marry Mother. But he certainly didn't understand little girls. Uh, uh, Cynthia, I'm going to give you half a crown for being a very good little girl. Now, uh, tell me, what will you do with it? I'll buy something for Mummy. Oh, no, no, my dear. This is your own money. Uh, you put it in a savings account at the post office and it'll make more money for you. Always remember, my dear, take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. Then there was the wonderful wise woman who knew all the things that aren't in books. Always remember, my bunny, that it's good luck to touch the hump of a hunchback. But the curse of Beelzebub himself will be upon ye if he look at a sliver of silver moon through the glass. And then the strangest and most wonderful of them all was the lean, middle-aged man with a sharp face and the bee-net, whom I met one day on the Downs. Good afternoon, young lady. Good afternoon. I'm Cynthia Browning. My name is Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Why are you carrying that net? You looking for butterflies? Oh, no, Cynthia. I'm a bee farmer. Bee farmer? <coughs> oh, that sounds funny. How do you farm bees? Well, come over to my place one day and I'll show you. I say, that's a beautiful doll you're carrying. Isn't a doll. It's my mascot. It was given to me by Frank King, painter. He made it for me. He made it to look as much like me as possible. I call her me. It's a remarkable likeness. See the hair? That's clippings off my hair. And the nails? Those are clippings from my own nails. She's really me. And I love her. Your own nails and hair? And the dog is an exact replica of you? I don't like that, Cynthia. Um, remember, my dear, my name, uh, will you, uh, it's uh, Sherlock Holmes. And I live at the bee farm. And if anything unusual happens, uh, come to me at once. Of course, Dr. Watson. I'll confess that that first meeting with Sherlock Holmes rather frightened me. You didn't understand why he was so worried about the doll, eh? No, but I remembered what he said about coming to him if anything unusual happened. And I'm sure that that unusual something did happen. Yes, Mr. Bartell. And within a very few days. But at this point, I think Dr. Watson should take over the story. It's where he and Mr. Holmes really entered into oh, it. Oh, very well. As I mentioned earlier, Mr. Bartell, I was staying with Holmes. 
late in the afternoon, as I remember, that you ran over to the bee farm where I first met you, Cynthia. A few moments before you arrived, Holmes and I, each of us with a cup of tea in our hands, were seated on the veranda, gazing out across the downs, and discussing the mutability of human affairs. It is strange, Watson, that after a lifetime devoted to the more flamboyant aspects of everyday life, that now, in what is the fast-approaching twilight of my days, I find that... Peace and companionship in the exact and predictable behavior of bees. <laughs> I wonder what Mariotti would have thought. Oh, you're talking as if you're an old daughter of 90. You say what you like, but I don't think that you'll ever really be happy in retirement. You miss the danger, the, the excitement of the kiss, the, the public acclaim. What? what are you talking about? <laughs> My work was never for the public. And <clears throat> what did the public, the great unobservant public, who could hardly tell a weaver by his tooth or a typesetter by his left thumb, care about the finer shades of analysis or deduction. In any case, Watson, I chose a happy time to sink into oblivion. In comparatively recent years, the criminal seems to have lost all his originality and enterprise. My own little practice when I gave it up seemed to be in danger of developing into an agency for recovering lost lead pencils or giving advice to young ladies from boarding schools. Oh, talking of young ladies, who's this little girl running up your driveway? Hmm? Oh, great Scott, it's uh, little Cynthia, Cynthia Browning. Oh, and who's she? Oh, a charming young neighbor of mine. Hello, Cynthia. Hello, Mr. Holmes. You've come to see how I farm bees, haven't you? No, Mr. Holmes. You told me to come to you if something unusual happened. It has. Something that's frightened me. Well, now, sit down, my dear. This is my old friend, Dr. Watson. Oh, how do you do, Cynthia? How do you do? Ah, Cynthia, dear. What has frightened you? It's my mascot. My me. Look, somebody stabbed her through the heart. Great Scott, a doll that's an exact replica of her. With a penknife thrust into it. Good uh, gracious me. When did you find your... your mascot like this? Just after tea. Mummy had some gentlemen calling on her. And afterwards I went up to my room and found poor me on the bed. I remembered what you told me about anything unusual. And so I came over here as fast as I could. Yes, I'm glad that you did, Cynthia. But did you tell your mother where you'd gone with her? No, I didn't. She was still talking to the gentleman. Well, she'll be... she'll worry about you when she discovers your disappearance. No, no. don't worry, Watson. I shall go over and talk to her at once. Uh, Cynthia, my dear. Yes, Mr. Holmes? Uh, who were the gentlemen calling on your mother? Well, there was Mr. Tanner. Yes. He's the man who looks after the estate for Mummy. Mm -hmm. Mr. King, the painter. Mr. King is the man who made this doll, eh? Now, who else was there? Mr. Pound. He's a businessman from London that's staying with Mummy. Mm. And they were all present in your house when you found the do the uh, mascot lying on the bed. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Mm. What's no chap? Yes, sir? I'm going over to see Cynthia's mother at once. I want Cynthia to stay here with you. Guard her, old chap, as you would your life. Uh, Mrs. Browning, I know I must seem like an intrusive neighbor, but uh, possibly you've heard of me. My name is Holmes, Sherlock Holmes. Well, who hasn't heard of the famous Sherlock Holmes? Uh, please sit down, won't oh, you? thank you. Your guests have left? Yes, but how did you know I had guests? I know you're a great detective, uh, but... Your charming little daughter, Cynthia, came over to see me half an hour ago, told me. So that's where she went. Uh, did she come back with... Uh, no, Mrs. Browning, I felt it safer that she remain at my place for a while. My friend, Dr. Watson, will look after her. I'm afraid uh, she may be in danger. In danger? Mr. Holmes, what makes you say that? You know your daughter's doll, the one fashioned in her own likeness and with her own hair and nails? Of course. Frank King made it for her. Uh, while you were at tea this afternoon, your daughter found the doll lying on her bed. With a penknife stuck through its heart. That's very peculiar. But I don't see that she should be in any danger because of it, Mr. Holmes. Uh, Mrs. Browning, certain practitioners of magic believe that if a doll-like effigy is made of a human being, 
and the effigy is then mutilated, that a similar fate will befall the living original. But, Mr. Holmes, that's black magic. You can't possibly believe oh, in it. not in the results of stabbing a doll, Mrs. Browning, but I... Well, it's possible that someone is trying to kill your daughter. To kill Cynthia? Oh, no. It may be more than a possibility, I'm afraid. And when these magical means fail, they will turn to more direct methods. But who could possibly want her death? You, uh... You have not remarried, Mrs. Uh, Browning. No, I feel it my duty to devote my life to Arthur's child, Cynthia. Yes, then anyone wishing to marry you might feel that Cynthia stood in the way. But that's absurd. But logical, Mrs. Browning. Do you mind if I ask you a very personal question? With Cynthia's safety at stake, you may ask any question. Are any of the three men who were present at tea this afternoon desirous of marrying you? Well, I... Please be completely honest, Mrs. Browning. Uh, at different times, they, they've all asked me to marry them, yes. And you won't contemplate marriage because of your dead husband's child. Hmm? Uh, tell me, Mrs. Browning, have you seen this penknife before? It was the one unstuck through the doll's heart. I don't think I've ever seen it before. One final question. Would anyone among Cynthia's acquaintances have a knowledge of uh, the practice of magic? Well, uh, the old woman that Cynthia calls the wise woman might. Oh, who might she be? A strange creature that lives in some hovel on the downs near here. Mm -hmm. She brews weird concoctions with herbs, love filters, and all that sort of thing. I'd be a suitable companion for your daughter, Mrs. Browning. I know it, Mr. Holmes. I've told Cynthia over and over again that she mustn't stray off and see the old woman. But you know how disobedient children are at her age. I'm sure she's been over there recently. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk to this woman. Where does she live? I don't know exactly, but Frank can take you there. He used her as a model. Uh, Frank King, the, the painter? Yes, he lives in the village. Mm. Then I shall call on him at once and persuade him to accompany me. We must find that wise woman, and I hope save your child from magic. Magic and possible murder. much further, Mr. King. Only a few more yards, Mr. Holmes. A little cottage is just behind the trees there. It's a pretty broken down place. Poor old girl has only a few pennies to her name, I imagine. Mrs. Browning was telling me that you used this old woman as a model. Yes, she was a fascinating subject. I painted her as she was mixing up some devil's concoction of herbs and spices. I had her standing over a smoking cauldron with the firelight playing on her. It was, it was quite effective. Yes, it must have been. The uh, subject of witchcraft appeals to you, Mr. King? Well, I, I don't know anything about it. Was just that she was such a wonderful subject for a painter. Mm. Here we are. I'll knock on the door. I think we'll take the liberty of going in, shall we? Mm, I don't see why not. What is it? Listen. Came from that room. Someone is here. Come on. Look at her. Look at her head. Poor devil. Yes, she's still alive. She isn't long for this world. Can you hear me? Here, let me lift you up a little. Can you understand what I'm saying? Tell me. Who was it that did this to you? She's too far gone to speak. Got a piece of paper and a pencil? Yes. Wait a minute. Here you are. Thanks. Now, can you write the name of the man who did this to you? She's pushing the pencil away. I don't suppose she knows how to write. She's trying to show you something, Mr. Holmes. She's trying to crawl over to the wall. Yes. Here, let me help you. This will be a hiding place of some kind. Look. She's taking a brick out of the wall. What is it? Great Scott. Money. A veritable jackdaw's nest of pennies. And small silver. 
and at least a dozen golden sovereigns. That must be the money. Look! She's picking out one of the silver coins. She's trying to get for you. A sixpence, but what? Oh, poor woman, she's dead. And just as she was trying to tell me something... I can't understand it. Golden sovereigns in this hovel, and she was... She was showing you a silver sixpence as she died. Mr. Holmes, what are you going to do? First, check on the young girl's safety. Meanwhile, I should like you to go back to my mother's. Assemble the other two men who were present at tea time this afternoon and keep them there until I arrive. I shan't be long. But the police... I shall summon the Mr. King when I have the murderer to offer them. And I'm convinced that that will be before the sun sets tonight. We'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a second. Time enough for me to mention another wonderful Petri wine. Petri California Muscatel. If you like that subtle muscat flavor, who doesn't, you really like Petri Muscatel. Petri Muscatel is a clear golden wine that is just as much a hit with the ladies as Petri Port is with the men. But I don't mean by that that only the ladies like Petri Muscatel. In fact, if you want to be sure to please everybody, get both Petri Port and Petri Muscatel. In other words, don't buy one, buy two. But do be sure you always buy Petri. Now back to Dr. Watson and his guest tonight, Mrs. Campbell, who played a most important part in the story herself. Oh, not nearly as important a part as that played by Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson. Well, Dr. Watson, what happened when Sherlock Holmes rejoined you at the bee farm? Well, first of all, he made sure that the little girl was safe. Then he told me of finding the dead woman and of his theories as to the killing. I can almost hear him now, Mr. Bartell, as he said... Watson, <clears throat> someone wanted the little girl out of the way because they knew the mother would never marry while the child was alive. And that's persuaded the old woman to do the job for him, I suppose. Undoubtedly. And she, believing in the powers of black magic, mutilated the doll, firmly convinced that in so doing she was destroying the young girl that was fashioned after. And then, I suppose, when the potential murderer discovered the woman was merely indulging in stupid folklore, he killed her, mm -hmm. realizing she was only a hindrance to him, and with her knowledge of the plan, a dangerous hindrance. Exactly, my dear fellow. But, um... How do you suppose we account for the hoard of money? Golden sovereigns, don't forget, that we found in the hobble. Well, no doubt it was a sum that she was already being paid for the murder that she was going to commit. Mm. As she died, she tried to give me the clue to her murderer by selecting certain, certain coin. Now, in her possession, she had gold, silver, and copper. She chose a silver coin. And yet I can't see its significance, I must confess. Well, at the moment, possibly not. And yet, before the evening's over, I bet you that... What did you say, Watson? I said before the evening's over, I, I bet you... Thank you, old fellow. That's the clue. You bet me. What on earth are you talking about, Holmes? I was just saying... You've that... just given me the answer to the whole problem, Watson. What? I'm much obliged to you. Stay here, will you, old chap? And look after Cynthia a little while longer. Within a very short time, I shall have her intent destroyer under lock and key. <laughs> Mr. Holmes, I'm glad you've come. I've had the greatest difficulty in persuading these three gentlemen that their presence was necessary. Within a few minutes, Mrs. Browning, two of them will be entirely free to leave if they want to. I think it'd be a good idea to tell everyone what happened. Yes, uh, well, uh, 
Mr. Pound, Holmes, I don't think I think, think it'd I... be a good idea to tell everyone what happened. Yes, how do you do, Mr. Pound? Oh, oh how, how do you do, Mr. Holmes? Uh, look here. If there's some scandal down oh, here... Oh, there is, Mr. Pound. Uh, then I want my name kept out of it. You hear? I have a seat on the London Stock Exchange. Oh, very comfortable for you. Yes. <laughs> and the other gentleman, by the process of elimination, must be Mr. Hugh Tanner, the manager of your estate, Mrs. Brown. Yes, I'm Hugh Tanner. And now, Mr. Holmes, supposing you tell us what this is all about... I'm a straightforward man, and all this mystery is rather aggravating. Something has happened. Something that concerns us all. What is it? Murder. Murder? <laughs> Murder? Good Lord, who's been murdered? An old woman who lived in the village. Your daughter, Mrs. Browning, referred to her as the wise woman. Mr. King and I found her tonight in a cottage on the downs, beaten to death. Murdered. Well, that's shocking, but what's it got to do with us? I'll explain, Mr. Pound. Each one of you, I believe, would like to marry Mrs. Browning. Her daughter, Cynthia, is an obstacle to such a marriage. One of you decided to remove that obstacle and engage the wise woman to carry out the plan. Finding the woman clumsy and ineffective, you decided that she was a dangerous witness, and so you murdered her. Fortunately, the poor woman, as she was dying, gave me the clue to her murderer. But how did she do that, Mr. Holmes? I thought you said that she died without speaking. Uh, she did, Mrs. Browning, but she gave me the clue nonetheless, though I was shockingly slow in spotting it. Well, what was the clue? Uh, yes, let's let's stop being mysterious and come out into the open. Uh, you were with me, Mr. King, as she died. I shall let you tell them. Well, she was dying, unable to speak when Mr. Holmes asked who had attacked her. She couldn't write, but she showed him a hoard of copper and silver coins... And a dozen golden sovereigns. Sovereigns? In a hovel like that? Oh, I, I, I see. She meant her murderer was the man who had paid her. And with all that ill-gotten wealth, she died clutching a silver sixpence. Well, and you I... still don't uh, see who the murderer is? <laughs> Come along, gentlemen. You should know it as well as you know your own names. Now, Mr. King mentioned that there were a dozen sovereigns. Whose name does a sovereign suggest? Sovereign? Sovereign? King! You, Frank King, were the murderer. Oh, that's ridiculous. The old woman wasn't exactly a master mind. Why should she be so, so indirect? And how much is a sovereign worth? A pound. And your name, my friend, with a seat on the London Stock Exchange is pound, oh, isn't it? Oh, this is absolutely absurd. I can prove that I've never even met the woman. Well, what is the answer, Mr. Holmes? I'm sure that you know it. The answer is obvious, Mrs. Browning, though I'm ashamed to say that a chance remark of Dr. Watson's gave me the clue. Oh, now look here. Stop beating about the bush, Holmes. What is the answer? A very simple one, Mr. Pound. With 12 golden sovereigns at hand, sovereigns that would suggest either the name of King or Pound, what coin did the dying woman select? A sixpence. Exactly. A humble silver sixpence. And what is the common slang word for a sixpence? A tanner. Precisely. Which tells us that you, Mr. Hugh Tanner, killed the wise lady. Try and prove it. That's all. Just try and prove it. Holmes, what happened? I found the murderer, old chap. Thanks to you. What do you mean, thanks to me? Well, I was thinking of a sixpence, the coin the dead woman clutched in her hand, as sixpence. When you... I bet you I thought of the much-used expression, bet your tanner. That gave me the clue to the whole business. The dying woman was obviously trying to indicate that Hugh Tanner was her murderer. He confessed, you say, before the police arrived. Yes, after Frank King, the artist, had started to give him... Something of the thrashing he deserved. Oh, I take no particular pride in the case, Watson. Without your chance remark, I might easily have overlooked this obvious clue that the dying woman gave me. As I've said before, old chap, I should not attempt to emerge from my retirement. Yes, 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 yes. It's obvious that my reflexes are 
shockingly slow. Rubbish. The police would never have solved it. Oh, my dear Watson, when you compare me with the police, I realize that my retirement should be permanent. Uh, by the way, um, where is Cynthia? Well, I arranged with your housekeeper for her to have an early supper. Some kippers, a poached egg or two, a piece of that treacle oh, tart we had last night, and a, a pot of tea. Oh, for a 12-year-old girl, my dear Watson... This is an occasion when I might accuse you of being a potential murderer. Oh, Governor Holmes, you, you know perfectly well. Here she comes now. Hello, Cynthia. Did you enjoy your supper? It was lovely. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Is everything all right? Can I go home now? Yes, Cynthia. Everything's all right. Uh, tell me, my dear, did you ask Mr. King to make that mascot for you? Yes, Mr. Holmes. The wise woman told me it would bring me luck. Oh, yes, I thought so. Mr. Holmes, will everything be just like before? No, not quite, Cynthia. Mr. Tanner and the wise woman have gone away. You, uh, you won't see them again. Oh, dear. But you have new friends here, haven't you? Yes, and nice ones. Remember that, Cynthia. We'll always be your friends. I will, Dr. Watson. I like you both so much. Ah, oh, I'm glad. <laughs> and tell me, Cynthia, do you like Mr. King, the artist? Oh, yes. Almost as much as I used to like my daddy. Oh. He's like my daddy, a little. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that, Cynthia. Uh, tell your mother the same thing, will you? I think it might change a peculiarly foolish notion of hers. Well, Dr. Watson and Mrs. Campbell, that was a, a really different kind of story. I'm sure glad you were here tonight, Mrs. Campbell. Tell me, um, has Dr. Watson changed much since you last saw him? Well, yes. I think he's grown handsomer. <laughs> and and uh, what about Mrs. Campbell, Doctor? Has uh, she changed? Well, she is more grown up than the last time I saw her, but she hasn't changed much in one respect. Oh, what's that, Doctor? Your appetite, my dear. Oh. <laughs> I remember how Holmes was amazed at the mouth you ate when you were a child. But you certainly had just as hot a dinner this evening. Well, that was your fault, Doctor. Your dinner was too good. Oh, oh Cynthia, don't, don't talk about the wine. Oh, why shouldn't I talk about the wine? It was wonderful. Sure it was. It was Petri wine, that's why. You see? Now you got him started. And Mrs. Campbell, Petri wine is always good wine. That's because the Petri family has been making wine for generations. Ever since long ago when they started the Petri business, winemaking has been an art with the Petri family. It's a tradition a heritage that they've handed on down from father to son, from father to son. Believe me, when it comes to turning luscious, sun-ripened California grapes into fragrant, delicious wine, well, you can bet your last dollar that the Petri family really knows how. No matter what type of wine you prefer, for any occasion, you just can't miss with a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes adventure are you planning to tell us next week? Well, as next week, as St. Patrick's Day is about six days away, Mr. Bartell, I, I thought next week that I'd tell you a rather unusual story that took place at Ireland at the turn of the century. It concerns the famous ceremony of kissing Blarney Stone, St. Patrick's Night Revel, and an old Irish ballad that led directly to one of the most devilish murders that Sherlock Holmes and I ever encountered. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes' adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. 
Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. You can read about the stars of our broadcast at April issue of Everybody's Digest. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another story about his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And incidentally, I'd like to tell you about a swell American custom. The custom of serving sherry wine just before dinner. Petri California sherry. You know, especially when you have guests, while you're waiting for that call to the dinner table, there's nothing better than a good glass of that good Petri sherry. You don't need fancy glasses for Petri sherry. No, sir. That wine tastes good out of any glass. And it looks good, too. Beautifully clear and the color of precious amber. Just try that Petri sherry and you'll feel like smacking your lips after every sip. Oh, and say, Petri makes two kinds of sherry. The regular sherry and Petri pale dry sherry. Just to make sure you get perfect sherry for the whole family, don't buy one, buy two. But do be sure the sherry you buy is Petri sherry. Petri, the proudest name in the history of American wine. I'm sure our good friend Dr. Watson's ready for us. Let's go in and join him. Oh, there you are, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, Doctor. Say, where are the puppies this evening? Mr. Bartell, don't you think it's about time you began to refer to them as the dogs? They're almost a year old, you know. <laughs> I stand corrected. Where are the dogs this evening? Well, they had another furious battle with a dead seal on the beach today. My housekeeper, Mrs. West, is giving them a much-needed bath. <laughs> they certainly have an aversion to seals, don't they? Well, Doctor, are you all ready with tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, my boy, and as yesterday was St. Patrick's Day, I decided to tell you a story that took place in Ireland uh, a few years before the turn of the century. I imagine that you've heard of kissing the Blarney Stone, haven't you? Oh, yes, Doctor, though I've never understood exactly what it meant. Well, let me explain it to you, because the ceremony plays a, a very important part in the story tonight. 
Blarney Castle is an imposing 15th century ruin a few miles outside the town of Cork. The castle is many stories high, and in the foremost tower, the famous Blarney Stone is, is situated. What's supposed to be the point of kissing it, Doctor? The stone is considered a powerful talisman, and the legend runs that whoever kisses it is endowed with eloquence for life. <laughs> Say, Doctor, if I ever get over to Ireland, I'll certainly kiss that stone. But you're such a storyteller yourself, Doctor. I, I bet you've kissed it, huh? No, Mr. Bartell. I'm afraid I never had quite enough courage. Courage? Ooh, why does it need courage, Doctor? Well, because the Blarney Stone is, is set in a most inaccessible position on the outside wall to kiss it. It is customary to lower the candidate for eloquence over the rampart, head foremost, with a friend hanging out of his heels. From the top of a castle? It does sound dangerous, Doctor. Well, it was, my boy. So much so that in recent years, a great row of iron spikes has put round the parapet to prevent an accident. Though, of course, at the time tonight's story took place, there was no such guard. And I have a feeling that an accident did take place, no, Doctor. No, 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 Mr. Bartell, let me tell you the story from the beginning. Sherlock Holmes and I were staying in the city of Cork, where the great man had just solved the singular affair which the local press had referred to as the Leprechaun Murders. A few days before our departure for England, we paid a visit to Blarney Castle. I must confess that I had a certain desire to test the miraculous powers attributed to the Blarney Stone. I very soon changed my mind, however, as Holmes and I stood there, high on the turrets of Blarney Castle, and watched a terrified shape being hauled up by his ankles and yelling at the top of his voice. Pull me up! Pull me up quickly! I, I think I'm going to faint! Great, Scott. I had no idea that kissing the Barney Stone was such a hazardous proceeding, huh? Yes. It would seem that eloquence could be more easily obtained than by hanging suspended by one's ankles from a battlement with a hundred foot drop below and a piece of stone. Oh, I'll never do that again. Oh, I'll never, never I must do say, that. I don't blame the fuller. <laughs> and yet, my dear chap, on our way over here, you expressed a sneaking desire to kiss the stone yourself. I'll be very happy to hold your ankles if you want to try the experiment. No, no, thank you. After witnessing the ceremony, I've changed my mind. Then I suggest we make our way back downstairs. I don't think there's much more to be seen up here. Well, by the way, Holmes, do you know the origin of the superstition regarding the, the Blarney Stone? Yes, I do, old chap. The stone was, um, <clears throat> sorry, the stone dates back to the middle of the 15th century. A certain Cormac McCarthy called the Strong, a descendant of the ancient kings of Munster and builder of this castle, chanced one day to save an old woman from drowning. In her gratitude, she offered Cormac a golden tongue which would have the power to influence men and women, friends and foes, as he willed. She told him to mount the battleman and kiss a certain stone in the wall five feet below the gallery running around the top. He followed directions and obtained all the fluent persuasiveness she had promised. And I suppose the story spread and the Blarney Stone has been a magnet to pilgrims ever since. Yeah, pleasant legend. Uh, Holmes. Yes, old chap? Tomorrow's St. Patrick's Day. I, I bet there'll be quite a bit of excitement in the village tonight. Don't you think it'd be rather fun to pay a visit to one of the local inns? Splendid idea, old chap. Our rather arduous work here in Ireland is concluded, and I think we're more than entitled to a little gaiety. Charming, quite charming. A waiter and singing at his work. Singing very well, too. Just the same. I wish someone would come and take our order. Oh, there's a barmaid. I'll see if I can catch her eye. Hi. Uh, miss? Miss? Would you gentlemen be after wanting something? Yes, my dear. My friend and I would like a little refreshment. And what would you suggest? What would I suggest, Your Honor? Oh, big God. There's but one drink a gentleman like yourself should be after pouring down you. 
And that's the cream of Connemora. Whiskey that'll soften your heart and, and make you glow with a good feeling so so that the little people will be after visiting you. <laughs> it sounds delightful. Bring two glasses, will you? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. I, I must say, I never heard an English barmaid going to such rhapsodies over a nip of whiskey. No, the Irish are distinctly more colorful in their speech. It's an interesting fact, though, Watson, that uh, the Irish are curiously unrewarding in the criminal world. England, Scotland, America, Australia have all produced classics of crime. But the Irish murders, almost without exception, have been purely physical affairs of hot blood. You say that rather regretfully, Holmes. No, my dear chap. No, no, no. Miss Watson, look at this rather florid-looking gentleman coming towards our table. Uh, looks to me as if he's a little under the weather. You fellows have got to have a drink with me. Oh, thank you, sir, thank you, but we've just ordered one. Well, you've got to have it with me. I went to the races at Cork today and made a killing. I'm going to buy all the drinks here tonight. I'm afraid that... Uh, Nothing to be, be afraid of. I'll, uh, I'll sit down with you for a moment. There. My name's... Hankin, Jeffrey Hankin. What's yours? <laughs> Mine is Holmes, and this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do, do, do sir? How do you do? Your honors, uh, that'll be one in six. Here, I'm paying for these here. Half a crown, and you can keep the change. Oh, Thank blessings you, on you, Your Honor. Oh, well, if you insist on paying for our drinks, Mr. Hankin, here's your very yes, good health. Yes, indeed. You're, uh, you're both English, aren't you? Yes, sir. So am I, and it's certainly a relief to hear an English voice again. Oh, you don't like the Irish lilt, sir? Can't bear it. <laughs> Personally, I find it rather charming. Yes, indeed, so do I. Well, you wouldn't if you had to live with it all the time. Sometimes I think that if I hear one Irish tenor singing Molly Malone or one more reference to the little people, I shall go raving mad. <laughs> you live in Ireland, sir? Yeah, I have to. I own a half interest in the tweed mill here, you see. In any case, my wife's Irish and she thinks there's no other country in the world, so I suppose I'm stuck here. Uh, see that couple sitting at the table over there? You mean the fellow with a with very beautiful girl? yes. Man's Michael Corker and my partner. Oh, the girl's absolutely ravishing. <laughs> You'd like to meet her? I'd like to meet George, yes. What, what do you say, Holmes? Oh, very well, Watson. The combination of my natural curiosity and your taste for a pretty face would um, seem to suit the occasion admirably. I might as well warn you, Doctor, that the pretty face belongs to my wife. Your wife? Oh, good gracious me. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to... Oh, well, you better bring your glasses with you. <laughs> Molly, my dear, I want you to meet two English friends of mine, Mr. Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. How do you oh, do? How do you do, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson? Won't you sit down and join us? And this is my partner, Michael Corcoran. Now, how do you do, Mr. Corcoran? How do you do, sir? I'm glad to meet you. Please be seated, gentlemen. Are you visiting here in Cork, Mr. Uh, yes, Holmes? Mrs. Hankin, but uh, we're returning to England in a few days. You've been to Blarney Castle, I hope. Oh, oh yes, we were there this afternoon. And uh, did either of you have the courage to kiss the Blarney Stone? No, no, we didn't. I'm afraid it's an athletic feat that's beyond me. It's a lot of rubbish, that's <laughs> what it is. Kissing a slab of stone. Uh, have you the courage to do it, Geoffrey? Well, of course I have, but I don't want to make a fool of myself. Where's the barmaid? Kathleen, I'll make a wager, Geoffrey, that you haven't the courage to kiss the stone. How much shall you bet, Michael? I'll wager a ten-pound note on it. It's a bet, and you fellows witnessed it. I'll kiss the Blarney Stone at noon tomorrow, and you'll be ten pounds the poorer, Michael. And I suggest that Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson be present as well. They can act as referees. Geoffrey, dear, don't get so excited. Well, I don't like it when Michael suggests I don't have courage. You want some more drink, Mr. Henry? Yes, all of us want some uh, more. No more for me, thank you, Mr. No, 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 no more for and me. And I thank think you. you've had enough, Geoffrey. Don't tell me when I've had enough, Molly. In Dublin. Fair city, the girls oh, no, are so pretty. not that filthy song. Yes. Firstly, Mr. Hankin, I find the traditional Irish melodies quite beautiful. And I find them revolting. Stop! Shepard, quiet. 
Would your honor be wanting me to sing another song? My honor would like you to shut up that filthy caterwauling. Really, sir, really, oh, I call Jeffrey. it Mr. Sean, please go on with your singing. In Dublin's fair city... You heard me, you great so bog-trotting gazoon. I said shut up, and I meant shut up! Jeffrey, oh. I'm leaving here at once. Michael, please to take me home. It'll be my pleasure, Molly. You're an ugly man, Mr. Henkin. Knocking down poor Sean when he was singing just like a bird. Oh, the devil with him, and all of you. No Irishman will be after forgiving you for this night's work. No, not the little people of old Ireland either. You've made more enemies, Mr. Henkin, than you'll ever see. But you'll be knowing they're there. Fiddlesticks, you can't frighten me with your stupid Irish superstition. Well, bless my soul, that was a charming little party, I, I must say. Englishmen like Hankin are a disgrace to their country. Fortunately, they're not representative, though. Yes, I must say, I hate to have a curse put on me like that barmaid laid on him. Watson. Yes? Did you see the glances which Mr. Hankin's partner and his wife exchanged as the brawl started? There was more menace to him in those glances than in all the threats of all the little people in Ireland. Yes. I thought that there was something between them. I say, Holmes... That bet about Hankin kissing the Blarney Stone at noon tomorrow, do you suppose... I suppose that... nothing, old fellow. But there are forces at work here that I don't like. I think, Watson, that uh, you and I will be at the Blarney Stone at noon tomorrow. It's possible that the bet made tonight is all part of a definite plan, and I have a feeling that the bet is still on. Quite windy up here today, old fellow, at the top of the tower, isn't it? Yes, it's just past noon. I wonder if that man Hankin is going to keep to the terms of his bet. We shall soon learn. In the meanwhile, are you sure that you wouldn't like to change your mind and kiss the blarney stone yourself? I'm quite sure, thank you. Ah, here they come now. Yes. Hankin and his partner, Mr. Cochran. The bet is on, Watson. Good day to you, gentlemen. Oh, hello. My friends from last night. Well, I see you're going through with the bet, son. Oh, yes. Jeffrey set his mind on the ten pounds of mine. Your wife didn't accompany you, Mr. Hankin. No, she didn't. I'm afraid I'm rather in disgrace for my behavior last night. Molly made me go around and see that waiter fellow that I hit. I offered him money, but he wouldn't take it. Did you offer him an apology? Apologize to a waiter? I should say not. Well, come on, let's get this stupid farce over with. Uh, are you sure your nerves can stand it, Jeffrey? It's a drop of a hundred feet or more below you. Oh, don't worry about me, Michael. Just hold on to my ankles tightly and don't let go. I'll climb onto the parapet. There we are. Now hold on to my feet, Michael, and lower me gently. Uh, I'm holding you, Jeffrey. Then lower away. Uh, right you are, Jeffrey. Great Scott, I wouldn't do that for a hundred pounds. Sliding head first down a vertical wall. That's enough, Michael. I can reach the stone. Oh, his boots! They're slipping through my fingers. I can't hold yeah, him. Let me help you. I'm sitting. Hold him. Hold on to him. Hold on to him. Oh, he's gone. I just couldn't hold him. Great heavens. No man could survive that drop. Mr. Cochran, you deliberately let your partner slip to his death. This is murder. Yeah. But I don't understand. I, I'm a strong man. But he just vanished out of my hands like, like a greased pig. Let me see your hands, Mr. Cochran. This is dreadful. Dreadful. There's grease on your hands. Grease. And with a faint trace of boot blacking. Good Lord, Holmes. That it means, means that... Watson, that someone knowing that Hankin was going to kiss the Blarney Stone smeared his boots with grease so that he would slip out of the grasp of whoever was holding him. 
As clever a method of indirect long-distance murder as ever I've encountered. You'll hear the remainder of Doc Watson's story in just a second, so I'm going to remind you that Petri California Sherry is not only wonderful before dinner, but it's good almost any time. If you had to choose just one wine for almost any occasion, that wine would be Petri Sherry. Petri Sherry is a perfect wine to serve in the afternoon or in the evening. It's good before dinner, yes, but it's swell after dinner, too. In fact, with a bottle of Petri Sherry on your shelf, you've got practically a small-sized wine cellar. So get a bottle of Petri Sherry soon. And remember, you can't miss with any wine that has the letters P-E-T-R-I on the label because all Petri wine is good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, this is quite a story you're telling us tonight. Uh, what happened next? I suppose you went down into the castle grounds and looked for the dead man's body? Well, we tried to, Mr. Bartell, but the authorities were curiously uncooperative. They refused to let us search, insisting that the police be called first. And so, Mr. Bartell, half an hour after the tragedy... Holmes and I found ourselves standing in a tiny police station as we told the story to the local sergeant. Ah, sure, the saints be praised, Mr. Holmes. It is a terrible story you've told me. Tomorrow I'll be after arresting Sean O'Flaherty. Sean O'Flaherty? He's the waiter at the inn, the one who sings. That he is, that he is, and he sings like a breath of spring. I'll be sorry to see him hang. But do you, you no proof that he was responsible for the murder? Proof, you say, sir? Well, I can't arrest a big man, a factory man like Mr. Cochran, can I? Or a fine lady like Mrs. Hankins. But you can't arrest a man without any evidence of guilt. Oh, I can't, can't I? Then suppose I tell you that Sean O'Flaherty cleans the boats at the hotel where Mr. Hankins was staying. He does, eh? Then he had the perfect opportunity for the greasing of Hankins' boots this morning. And we know he had a motive for harming him. You're right, sir. And from what I have heard of the dead man's behavior last night, half a dozen people could have heard him make the bet that he'd kiss the Blarney Stone today. Sean O'Flaherty's our man. I'll have to arrest him tomorrow. Tomorrow? But good heavens, man, aren't you going to do something today? A murderer's at large. Today is blessed St. Patrick's Day. Oh, I should let the poor fellow have the day in peace. Oh, he won't run away. But my dear sir... Uh, will you come back with me to the castle and search for the body? They refuse to let me do it alone. On St. Patrick's Day? That I will not. We would need a crew of helpers, and where will I be after getting them on the blessed St. Patrick's Day? No, no, we'll do that tomorrow, too. No, today's a day for celebrating. Oh, your, your methods astound me, Sergeant. Oh, do they now, sir? Don't <laughs> be after fretting about me. Just enjoy yourself today. Tomorrow we'll see what can be done about it. Well, good day to you, gentlemen. Bless my soul. I've never seen such a happy-go-lucky policeman in my life. It's infuriating. Only I were allowed to examine Hankins, but I could get to the bottom of this. Well, what are you going to do now, Holmes? If the police won't help us. Then we must take the law into our own hands. I think we'll start off by going to the hotel and seeing what we can find out from Sean O'Flaherty. As I was going to Berlinure day, I will remember for to view the lads and lasses on the fifth day of November with a maring do a day and a maring a do a daddy oh your honors would be after speaking to me sean o'flaherty perhaps yes sean did you know that mr hankin the man who struck you last night was dead dead well if ever a man deserved to be beneath the side was jeffrey hankin himself a mean ugly man this seems to be praised that he's gone how did he die sir he was murdered murdered well, but, Dad, I'm not surprised to hear it. 
Who murdered him, sir? At the moment, the police seem to think that uh, you are the culprit. Myself? Well, how would I be after murdering the man, sir, when I don't even know how he died? He died when he fell from the top of Blarney Castle as he was trying to kiss the stone. He fell because Mr. Cochran, his partner, couldn't hold on to his feet. His boots had been greased. And we know that you have been cleaning his boots, Sean. That I have, sir. I cleaned them this very morning. But I put no grease on them, if that's what you'd be after suggesting. I'm suggesting nothing. I'm trying to establish a few facts. Do you know Kathleen the barmaid? Oh, and why shouldn't I know her, sir? She's a beamy wife before the winter sets in. Uh, she pronounced a curse on the dead man last night just after he had knocked you down. It's possible that um, she met... Here she comes, huh? Sean, my darling, what are the fine gentlemen doing here? Oh, Kathleen. They've come to ask me questions about the death of Mr. Hankin. He fell off Blarney Castle today and got himself murdered, they say. The saints be praised. But, uh, but what has that to do with you, my darling? Well, the gentlemen tell me that the village police think that I might have greased his boots so that he slipped to his death. The village police is as stupid as my father's big sow. If Mr. Hankin fell to his death today because his boots were greased... I can tell you who did it. And who? The little people. I warned Mr. Henkin last night that the little people would be after him. He insulted the Irish. Oh, come, 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 my dear. You don't seriously expect us to believe in the, in the little people? And why not, Your Honor? We have them here. Oh, there are those that say the fairies all be dead, but, but I know different. I've seen them. When I was a slip of a girl, close to where I live, there was a rat. Uh, that's a fort, you know. And the rat was a fairy's fort. We never dare touch it with a spade or, or count a tree growing on it or carry away a stone. We'd put our ear to the ground at night and, and we could hear the fairy music rising up from under the ground. Ah, oh, they're gentle people. Most of the time. But they'd grease the boots of a man like Mr. Henkin if they didn't like them. That they would, yeah. Your Honor. Holmes, I'm certain that we're wasting our time here. I feel so, Watson. You get the whole thing turned on the greasing of those boots. If only I could have the boots in my hands. If only I could make laboratory tests. But until that dolt of a police... But of course! I have it, Watson. You have what, Holmes? The answer, I hope. Get hold of Mrs. Hankin and Mr. Corcoran. Have them meet me in the Blarnestone Tower in half an hour. And you, where are you going? To the police station to try and convince the sergeant that even though St. Patrick's Day, it's his duty to help me trap a murderer. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Holmes, you're an obstinate man. It's blessed St. Patrick's Day, and yet you insist that we meet here on the top of Blarney Castle. Uh, what do you think you can prove? Who murdered Jeffrey Hankin? Yes, but why do Molly and I have to be here? Yes, Mr. Holmes, and poor Jeffrey's body's still lying somewhere below us. Uh, Mrs. Hankin, Mr. Corcoran, I asked Dr. Watson to bring you here for a good reason, I assure you. Be ready, Watson. Quite ready, Holmes. Uh, good. Sergeant. Uh, yes, sir. You asked me why I've assembled the three of you here. I'm going to reconstruct the crime. I shall play the part of the victim. My friend Dr. Watson will represent you, Cochran. Now, I straddle the parapet. So. Uh, Watson, hold on to my feet, Bill. Uh, I've got him, Holmes. And uh, lower me down the face of the wall. Right, you are. Holmes! Holmes, hold tight to the wall. Oh. Try and push yourself back. The murderer's tried to get you. Your boots are covered in grease. Stand back. Come away. Grab my trouser legs, Watson. I've got him, Holmes. Come. Up you come. There we go. Oh, my God. That was a near thing. Devilish plot, Sergeant. And 
Very cleverly carried out. My boots were ungreased when I entered the castle, and yet someone has been able to apply grease to them, without my knowledge, within the last few minutes. Sure, and how is that possible, sir? I don't know, Sergeant. I must confess. Holmes, you stumbled as you came up the darkened staircase. Do you remember that? That's true, old chap. I'd forgotten. And you, Mrs. Hankin, and you, Mr. Corcoran, were kind enough to assist me to my feet. An excellent opportunity to apply the grease. Now we know that one of you two is the murderer. I must have a jar of grease somewhere. Now, Sergeant, will you search the lady while I search Mr. Corcoran? But this is ridiculous. Of course it is. How could we be guilty? Well, if you're not guilty, you've got no objection to being searched, ma'am. Well, upon my word, here in your purse, Mrs. Hankin, is a jar of grease. What? Now, what have you to say if you're sorry? Why can't you say, Sergeant? Except that she engineered her husband's murder and tried to engineer mine. Oh, no. No. I knew nothing about Jeffrey's murder. Oh, Michael, darling, I swear to Don't you. Don't worry, my darling. I'll not let them hurt you. I'm telling you, you're wrong, Mr. Holmes. I... I was the murderer. Oh, no, Michael. You mustn't sacrifice yourself for I me. I think this little play acting has gone far enough. Mr. Corcoran, you have just offered us what you think we will accept as a false confession. But I've established the one thing I wish to know. That you love your late partner's wife and she you. I'm proud to admit that, Mr. Holmes. And now that she's a widow, I can say it in the open. But what are you implying? That you murdered your partner. But... But the grease on your own boots, sir. I just found a jar of it, Mrs. Hankins. Oh, bang. oh, that, my dear sergeant, was all part of my little plan. As to the grease on my boots, I confess I placed it there myself. Just as I planted the jar of grease in your bag, Mrs. But why, Holmes? A fraud accomplished two ends. It forced you, Mr. Cochran, into a betrayal of your love. But what was more important, it proved from what Dr. Watson's natural reactions were that a man... Holding the creased boots could not fail to realize that fact at once. You brazenly committed murder before our very eyes, Mr. Corcoran, hoping to appear as an innocent victim of another's plot. Your theory is an ingenious one, Mr. Holmes, but how can you prove it? I can claim that my hands are unusually insensitive, not the delicate fingers of a doctor like your friend. Yes, he's right, sir. How can you prove it? When, uh, with your kind cooperation, Sergeant, we find the body of Mr. Hankin and examine it, I shall study his boots. If the grease was applied at the hotel, as it would have been if uh, Sean O'Flaherty had done it, the boots will reveal dust from the walk here. If there is no dust, the grease must have been applied as you grasped your partner's boots with grease-smeared hands, Mr. Cochran. You should know best what my test is. Grab him, you. Sergeant. Grab him. He's uh, come back here. Oh, Michael, don't. Please don't. Goodbye, Molly, me darling. No! Great, Scotty. He jumped off the parapet. Now, Mr. Holmes, you can see that I was right, sir. Wasn't I? What do you mean, Sergeant? Oh, in waiting until tomorrow to get the search party. Now we can be after finding both bodies at the one time. Doctor, that was it was really an unusual story. Uh, even now I get a bit of a shudder when I think of that afternoon at the castle. I don't blame you. Doctor, you know something? Uh, earlier this evening I said that if I ever got to Ireland, I'd certainly want to kiss the Blarney Stone, remember? Yeah? Well, I've changed my mind. I'd no more want to hang by my heels, kiss that stone, than... Well... Just let's forget it. But, my boy, don't forget if you kiss that stone, you get the gift of eloquence. You'd be the most convincing fellow in the world. So? So, well, whenever you talked about Petri wine, you'd really do people a favor because they wouldn't be able to resist trying it. Oh, talking about Petri wine isn't important, Doctor. 
The best way to determine just how good Petri wine really is, is to taste it. One sip and there's all the proof you need. That's because the Petri family has developed the art of winemaking to a truly fine point. They've been making wine for generations. And all the things the Petri family knows about turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine have been handed on down in the family from father to son, from father to son. That's why whenever you want a swell wine, for any occasion, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story are you planning to tell us next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a, a story in which that arch-criminal Professor Moriarty played a most important part. It deals with the theft of a famous painting of a strange night that Sherlock Holmes and I spent trapped in the interior of a giant metal vault and of mysterious bloodstains in an empty room. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in this Arthur Conan Doyle story, A Case of Identity. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Bulldog Drummond, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.